testing one two. Okay. I forget about recording here sometimes. All right. Heavenly Father, again we come before you and we thank you and praise you for your love towards us, especially Lord your mercy towards us, because uh, Lord we we sin far too often. Uh, we take our eyes off of thee and we're distracted and and different things happen and we have. Uh, we have family issues and you know, and whatever it may be. The devil is working hard. He's working very hard. He knows he has a short time and he's working very hard to destroy our families and destroy us and uh, to stop the gospel to the world. And so, Lord, we pray that you forgive us our sins. Uh, today is a new day. We, we can't do anything to change yesterday. Uh, but uh, we can ask that you forgive us. And we do. We ask uh, as we claim the blood of Jesus that you forgive us Forgive your people their sins, Lord, please. And help us to be shining lights to each other. Encourage one another uh, to love one another as you love us. And Lord, as we uh, come together here to study and to worship and to praise you, we also, uh, Lord, pray for each other. We lift up before you those who on our, our prayer list, uh, those that we have heard about today, uh, this 98-year-old uh, homebound lady named Lita who has broken her hip. Uh, we pray that you be very near to her, and and uh, she has seen a lot of things in her life. And I know, Lord, that she probably and hopefully she looks forward uh, just as much to Jesus' return as all of us do. And help her to be ready for that day especially, but heal her according to thy will. And, and Lord, we, we uh, lift up Elaine's grandson who we found out has been in the hospital. Uh, we pray that you be very near the doctors and nurses and the family. It's, uh, it's heart-wrenching to have a loved one uh, so ill, and uh, especially one who is in a, in a hospital. We pray that uh, he will be healed and uh, uh, that uh, it will be a testimony to your love and grace towards him. Um, also, Claudia is, is uh, going to be witnessing to a, a lady who has stage 4 cancer. Um, and uh, she's a, uh, my understanding, she's... In her 60s, she's a, a Buddhist, and so we pray for, we pray for Claudia that uh, you will give her the words to speak, and and that she will have the character of Jesus, <laughs> and that uh, this lady will see the love of God in her. And Father, be uh, with uh, our dear friend Jerry, whose uh, aunt who is in the hospital from a stroke and is in a coma. We pray that uh, you will uh, be very near to their hearts and bring comfort and peace. Uh, and if she's ready, Lord, uh, to to be asleep, that uh, it be your will that uh, the either be healed or rest in you until Jesus returns. Father, this subject that, that we're going to be addressing here today, um, as with all subjects that we find in your word, uh, that is for our time, our present truth, I pray that you give me uh, the Holy Spirit in my mind and my heart and give me the words to speak and bring thoughts to my mind. Um, this is something that helps to identify your end time church, which is our series. And uh, it is very important uh, for us to understand. So I pray, Lord, that you will give us the blessing that we ask for in the study here today. And we thank you so much for your giving up your son, Jesus. Uh, to die for us, to show us a way to live a righteous life, to be our example in all things, and that He continues to minister for us in heaven. May we aid Him in the blotting out of our sins. We pray in Jesus' name.
I had the mic on. I tend to do that anymore. <laughs> Nobody complained. Well, either they may not have been listening or <laughs> maybe they could hear me well. That's fine. I have entitled uh, this particular message. Now, this particular message still goes along with uh, the message that I had entitled The Gift Basket. When we talked about the fruits of the Spirit, uh, the gifts of the Spirit, and uh, this goes right along with it. In fact, it has to do with a particular spiritual gift that will be seen in God's church. God's remnant people, uh, His remnant uh, church then. And uh, just as a refresher, because we didn't speak to this directly last week, uh, we've been studying what the Bible has to say in defining God's church, and we're looking at uh, ten primary characteristics. Now, of course, uh, there are more, uh, but these are what uh, has struck me as being the most prominent uh, characteristics of the true people of God, the true church of God, and uh, all the others tend to fall within these attributes. They all coalesce, though, beloved, and so... Uh, very quickly here, uh, first attribute I think is one of the is number one. That's why I've listed it that way. Is that the God's people, His church, will have the nature of Christ. They're going to be humanity and divinity combined. They're going to be born again. See, believers. Uh, the second, it's the church is going to be a spiritual house which has Christ at the head. Uh, the third uh, is uh, the church is of the spiritual seed of Abraham. Uh, not the fleshly seed of Ishmael. It will be covenant keeping. And the Sabbath is a sign. And we've covered these so far uh, in our studies before uh, uh, today, our previous studies. Uh, the fourth thing, it, the church is a light that leads the way to the head, which again is Jesus Christ. Uh, the fifth thing, which we're dealing with uh, uh, right now, it'll have the gifts and bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This includes the testimony of Jesus, uh, which the Bible describes as the spirit of prophecy. And this is what we're going through here is number five. Uh, number six, stand upon the foundation of truth, especially present truth, three angels' messages is our present truth. We've, we've dealt with that. It will have the faith of Jesus, or uh, we say what is referred to as righteousness by faith. That's number seven. Uh, number eight, it will keep the law of God. And again, that's part of the covenant. It, it will be all ten commandments, though, won't it? Uh, the ninth attribute, it's going to be a living, uh, vibrant church that is alive in Christ. It's going to have a true fellowship of believers. You're not going to see divisions and uh, uh, cliques within God's true church. And the tenth, it's going to have and be filled with godly love, and there is going to be a spiritual unity uh, there. And so, um, those are the ten attributes that we've been looking at. Uh, one of the ten, again, one of the ten identifying attributes of the church is that it will have the gifts and bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And as I said, it includes the testimony of Jesus, which the Bible, again, defines as the spirit of prophecy. And we started looking at this particular attribute... Uh, and discovered that God gives gifts to His people, and thus His church. And so it is one of the greatest, I believe, identifying marks of God's church, especially 
in the last days, the time of the end. And there is one particular part of this character trait that is a sign of the remnant church in the last days. And since we are in the last days, we've been in the time of the end since the year 1798, the close of the 1260 years in prophecy. Uh, it behooves us to know uh, this, this attribute, <laughs> uh, this sign, as it were, as it helps to define God's people. And when you can define God's people, you can find His church. Uh, now, maybe disorganized. There may be little pockets of organized uh, um, parts of His church around the world, but that's a whole another issue, another a topic that we may get into after defining God's church. If you're interested, we were talking about evangelism a few moments ago. If you're interested in evangelism, you need to be, uh, is my opinion, well acquainted with the writings and the speeches of the Apostle Peter uh, because there are hundreds of millions of people in the world who have a special regard for the Apostle Peter. Let me put it that way. Uh, some of you uh, maybe understand what I'm saying. They have a special regard for the Apostle Peter. In fact, they say that he was the first head of their church. He was uh, the first pope, <laughs> they will tell you. And uh, Catholics that I talk to about this, it's really kind of interesting uh, when I relate to them what the Apostle Peter actually said about himself. They are shocked when they hear this. And uh, uh, I like talking to them sometimes about that because, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I like to, to shock them with the truth a little bit, you know. But it's recorded in Acts chapter 10 that a man by the name of Cornelius was so happy to see the Apostle Peter that he knelt down to worship him, if you'll recall. And Peter's reaction to that is what really shocks many Catholics. The Apostle Peter said, Stand up, I'm just a man. You recall that out of Acts 10. So, now you know that the supposed first pope would not even allow anybody to get down on their knees in front of them for worship. And something has changed since then, has it not? <laughs> anyway, the Apostle Peter had something to say about the last days. He had something to say about our days, the days that we are living in now. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 3. And as I said, this is part one in uh, the study that I've entitled Sending Elijah, which is a part of uh, the gift basket uh, uh, that uh, a message I gave a couple weeks ago. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. Peter says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days. Now that's our days, is it not? He says, There will come in the last days scoffers scoffers. Isn't that interesting? He says you're going to have scoffers walking after their own lusts. Verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. I want you to put that in the back of your mind for just a moment. All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 5, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. 
But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Of course, he's referring to the, the Noah's flood, and then the, the earth is going to be destroyed again and cleansed by fire. Now, I want you to notice what the, the Apostle Peter says is going to happen here. He's saying in the last days, the days in which you and I are living in. He says they're going to be scoffers. Now, some translations say mockers. Same thing. Mockers, scoffers. And what are they going to scoff at? They're going to scoff at the idea of creation. This is something that Peter is alluding to as well. They're going to scoff at the idea that the world came into existence by the word of God. They're going to scoff at the second coming of Jesus. They are going to scoff at the truth of God's word, the veracity of God's word. This is what Peter's bringing out here. And you'll notice also that the Apostle Paul talked about this too. If you go to 2 Peter chapter 3, or excuse me, 2 Timothy, let's get out of, of Peter here. That's where we were, 2 Peter chapter 3. Now we're going to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Beginning with the first verse. The Apostle Paul, he says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Okay? For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Now when we begin to read these things, it, it should open your eyes if you, you've been looking at what's going on around you, in, at least in, in your uh, neck of the woods, in your mission field, in the country of the United States, I'm going to tell you, we're seeing these things. And we're seeing them increase. At least I've seen them increase in, in the last 10 years dramatically. He says, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, truth breakers, excuse me, false accusers, continent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, boy, a lot of traitors today, <laughs> Uh, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Isn't that true? Now, not only will you see this in the world, you could almost expect this from the world, couldn't you? Because the world is controlled by those who, uh, or the most majority of people in the world are those who are controlled by their carnal heart. So this would be expected from those in the world. But Paul, or, or excuse me, what Paul is saying here is, these are people who profess to be Christians. Look at verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Then Paul gives us this counsel, from such turn away. We're not to be hanging out with people who are doing these things. Okay? Now how did the church get into such a mess like this? Well, I'm going to share with you. Uh, I'm going to list for you three things. Three things that have happened in the last 200 years. Things which have brought the world into greater spiritual peril and the church into peril uh, and uh, in the condition it's in than any previous time in world history. And in actuality, beloved, it ushers in the last great battle between the two seeds, remember, that they're spoken of in Genesis 3.15. Remember we talked about that. The seed of the woman, which is God's people, God's church, and the seed of the serpent, which is the devil's people. It's his church, referred to also as the synagogue of Satan. 
Now, I bring this to your attention because it's causing so many to be deceived. And the professed church has fallen for these three things, which leads to the development of all the other errors. And they, they, they fulfill what Paul has laid out here in not well they, they're fulfilling what Peter has laid out as well as what Paul has laid out in that they uh, have a form of godliness but they deny the power of it and so the first of these three things that have happened in the last 200 years is what is called and I have termed uh, the development of it's the development of higher criticism. Have you ever heard that? No. Higher criticism. Okay? Let me tell you what higher criticism is. Higher criticism is a historical approach to Scripture that investigates the composition of it, the date of it, and the authenticity of Scripture in order to determine its place in history. Okay? In other words... Higher criticism looks beyond the text and into the historical setting surrounding its construction and its development. So it's more concerned with how it was put together, the date it was put together, the authenticity of the, the, the author, than it is about what the text is actually saying. Okay? Now, this endeavor requires the critic to accept a presupposition here of doubt. Meaning the person must acknowledge uncertainty exists, you see, regarding the precise origins of the present day biblical text. Okay? So it has within itself the higher criticism has within itself foundation of a presupposition of doubt when it comes to study God's Word. Higher criticism primarily focuses on three things, like I mentioned before, but they, they term them source criticism, form criticism, and redaction criticism. And I'm going to break this down for you if I can. Because it's very important to understand this. Because if you start to understand this, you're going to see this being used from time to time, especially by ministers today, a lot of them. And you get into some Bible studies and you'll start to see some of this being used, friends, to do away or bring doubt to God's Word. And I'm sure some of you have actually experienced it but didn't know what it was called. I'm pretty positive about that. So let's look at the first uh, uh, focus of higher criticism, source criticism. Source criticism, that means being critical of it, examining it, see. Source criticism questions the traditional authorship of the Bible books. And it attempts to determine the original sources, you know, who really was the author of the book of Daniel, for instance. Have you ever run into that? Well, we found that Daniel really wasn't the one who wrote his book. Doesn't that bring doubt then to the prophecies and veracity of Daniel? And so see that they bring doubt to the authorship of God's Word. 
Now let's look at form criticism. It assumes that the style and cultural forms influence the writing of the text, so it attempts to determine the, orig the, 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 the original forms of it. So doubt to the original meaning of the text C is introduced due to living. Well, they're living in a different time. They're living in a different culture. So that those principles were just for that time and not for today. I can think of all kinds of things that uh, people use this form criticism to do away with. Dress reform, health reform, the culture uh, of music. You see? This is being used, and, and many of us uh, uh, have been witness to it, but didn't know exactly what it was. Let's look at redaction criticism. It's one of the focuses of the higher criticism technique. Redaction criticism believes the present-day documents are merely edited versions. That's why they're redacted, see? Uh, so it attempts to determine the specific revisions or edits that have happened to the particular Bible text. So there again is doubt that what was read, what you read in your Bible, is really all the author wrote on the subject. And, and so you begin to think, well, some parts of it are missing. Which means it could mean what it says or it could mean something different. So we're, we're not sure. So see, there's doubt again. And this development of higher criticism has, has been used, is found within the professed church, beloved. Very much so. Now these three criticisms contrast with what is called lower criticism. See, that's why it's called higher criticism. It makes it sound, oh, it's so much greater. You get a greater knowledge of God. Oh, but what you're doing, that's a lower criticism. You're not as educated. But lower criticism, friends, deals strictly with the text without denying its veracity. Simply put, lower criticism is taking the Bible just as it reads, line upon line. And I'll tell you, from my experience, that it is very, very difficult to share God's Word with someone who is trained in the techniques of higher criticism. They, they become essentially, sad to say, and I don't even like saying it, they become educated fools. Jesus has termed them fools. And so, what does Bible, the Bible say about itself? In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we know this. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We don't have to doubt it. Because the Bible says that God is truthful. God cannot lie. And He has shared the truth with us. It was inspired of God. And not only that, it says it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? So the man of God may be perfect, 
thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now I take it as it reads. That's lower criticism. Some would say, well, yeah, Paul was writing to Timothy and what was the culture around all this at that time? And there may be parts missing. We're not sure really if it was Paul who was writing it. Maybe Timothy was writing it down for Paul. You see what I'm saying? Higher criticism techniques bring doubt. That's the foundation of it is doubt. In 2 Peter 1.21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but what? Holy men of God spake as they were moved by who? The Holy Ghost. So the origins of Scripture are from God, you see. As He has inspired men. I want to share with you something from the Great Controversy, page 598. <clears throat> I may not even get through part one today. 598, Great Controversy. Quote, the truths must plainly, excuse me, the truths most plainly revealed in the Bible have been involved in doubt and darkness by learned men who, with a pretense of great wisdom, oh, great wisdom, higher criticism, teach that the scriptures have a mystical, a secret, spiritual meaning not apparent in the language employed. It's higher criticism. That's what she's speaking about here. Notice what she says next. These men are false teachers. Take it to the bank, friends. People who use higher criticism and teach others to do are false teachers. It was to such a class that Jesus declared, Ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God. Mark 12, 24. The language of the Bible should be explained according to its obvious meaning unless a symbol or figure is employed. Christ has given the promise, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. John 7, 17. If men would but take, and I, I've always loved this, if men would but take the Bible as it reads, if there were no false teachers to mislead and confuse their minds, a work would be accomplished that would make angels glad and that would bring into the fold of Christ thousands upon thousands who are now wandering in error. Like I said before, in my experience, it's very difficult to share the Word of God with those who have been indoctrinated with the higher criticism form of study, these techniques. One thing I've also noticed in my encounters uh, uh, with this is that pride is lifted up by those in this class as well. I mean, didn't you know that you can't understand the Bible by yourself? You must depend upon the scholars, the priests, the pastors, and above all, the Pope to tell you what the truth is. You know, of course, I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> Speaking of the Pope, I found it interesting that the origins of higher criticism can be traced back to the Reformation, or should I say the Counter-Reformation. 
and uh, it was uh, the comp counterpart to Martin Luther. You remember his name? Andreas Karlstadt. He's the one they brought in to, to uh, coach and to square off against Martin Luther. This Andreas Karlstadt, he expressed doubts that Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. And, you know, that's the first five books of the Bible. And when you start to look at some of these things, history shows that many of the scholars who followed in Karlstadt's course of thought were actually led to different forms of atheism and also into pantheism. It's very dangerous. Because the key foundation to the higher criticism is doubt. You're being critical of God's Word and doubt is at the foundation of that, see? I'll tell you, it's not the way to higher learning as it isn't a curriculum in the school of Christ. I'll tell you that right now. And the net result of higher criticism is that you, do, you don't have nearly as much confidence in the Bible anymore. You no longer look at it as the infallible Word of God. And, and Christian leaders need to know what we're up against. A world of unbelief. That's what Peter and Paul was telling us. And higher criticism is a big part of this. It has destroyed faith in the Bible for the majority of Christian ministers around the world and they lead others away with them. It's found in the supposed schools of Christ called seminaries. Or as one of our members calls them, cemeteries for a spiritual life. And there are preachers all over the world, friends, who claim to be Protestant preachers, many of them Adventists too, and they do not believe what the Bible says about how the world came into existence. And they don't believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And they don't believe in the virgin birth. And they don't believe in the blood atonement, the sanctuary messages. And they don't believe in the second coming of Christ. And they're leading out in all our churches and in our schools. I should say schools that profess to be and churches that profess to be of Christ. I mean, think about it. Have you ever heard reports where theologians get together and discuss the second coming of Christ? Most of them don't believe in it. Why? Why don't they believe in it? Since the Bible is very plain about it. Because they don't take the Bible plain. They don't take it as it reads. They use higher criticism. I'll tell you, Christian leaders or ministers and pastors don't, and I'm talking about all over the world, friends. They don't believe the Bible the way Martin Luther believed it. They don't believe it the way John Calvin believed it. They don't believe it the way our spiritual forefathers believe it, the way our Adventist pioneers believed it. And this has brought the world into the most perilous time since it was created my opinion. But there are two other things that have happened in the last 200 years that have also brought the world into these perilous times uh, that we're living in. The church also in a fallen condition paralyzed by all this error and these false teachings. And this second thing is and Peter and Paul alluded to it, especially Peter, the development of the theory of evolution 
and uni uniformitarianism. That is one of the biggest words that I've ever come across. Say that five times fast. Uniformitarianism. In 2 Peter 3, Peter specified that in the last days the theory of uniformitarianism would be taught, though he didn't use that word. <laughs> now, uniformitarianism is the assumption that the same natural laws and processes that operate in the universe now have always operated in the universe in the past and apply everywhere in the universe. Remember, Peter described the, the scoffers saying all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. All things continue as they were. In May of 1981, I graduated high school. That may be a shock to some of you, but I did. I graduated high school, and I went on a senior class trip to Washington, D.C. And one of the places that we visited was the Smithsonian Institute, which is uh, one of the largest museums in the entire world. It has many different buildings, and you can't visit everything in one day. You may not even be able to visit everything and go through it really well in a week. Now, of course, I like history, so I could probably spend weeks there. <laughs> but um, as we went through, I remember, as we went through the geology building, they said that the earth was millions of years old. Millions of years old. Now, this was before I was a Christian. And you're like, hmm, that's interesting. Now, by the way, you can figure out from the Bible, within a couple hundred years, pretty close, you can get pretty close at how old the world really is. That is, if you take the Bible as it reads, it's around 6,000 years old right now. Of course, geologists say that the world is, is uh, uh, billions of years old today. The common figure today is 4.5 billion years. And do you know what evidence they have for this theory? That the, the earth is 4.5 billion years? They have only one piece of evidence for the whole thing. Just one. It's the basis of their entire theory. It is the theory of uniformitarianism. And we were taught such things. Now, they didn't call it that. They didn't use that big word. But we were taught such things in public school. Remember that the, the, the present is the key to the past. You remember that saying? The present is the key to the past. It's functioning at the same rates. So you see what happens is geology, the geologists, they, they, they look at the depth of the sediment at the bottom of a lake, for instance. Then they measure and they say that the sediment is gathering at the rate of a sixteenth of an inch per year. So that means that this lake is X many years old by the total number of inches that are there. See? Everything just continues the same as it was from the beginning. That's the theory of uniformitarianism. That, along with the theory of evolution, has worked to destroy the confidence in the Bible and the inspired writings of God. Now, the evolutionist theory speculates that life began in the remote ages of the past, billions of years, 
when matter and force existed together and completely by chance life began. It supposes that the life started in its lowest forms and then gradually ascended to animal life and then finally the animals became human. You see, the theory says that all things progress forward and get better. Where God said in the beginning it was perfect and sin has made it deformed and it gets worse and worse. There's another evolutionary theory called theistic evolution which tries to combine the Bible story creation with the theory of evolution. The theory being that God created original matter and it has continued to evolve since to become life. I remember some Purdue students after church one day when we went to the other church got into a discussion of this and I was stunned. This is one of the first times I ever ran in to this theistic evolution idea. And they believed it. They believed it. But it's impossible to believe this theory in the Bible too, beloved, because they're in great conflict. Like I said, the Bible story is that God created all things in perfection. There's no room for progressive evolution. Sin has caused all the world to regress, not progress. But what's it do? The theory of evolution places God in obscurity and in fact makes Him unnecessary. It also degrades humanity to the lowest forms of life and makes us a descendant of the animals instead of a creature formed in the image of God. Sin becomes meaningless as we're said to be born that way, see? Thus the law of God's done away with and the world spins toward death and destruction. But to the evolutionist, things are progressing. They're getting better. Peace and safety. Now, I'm glad that at least some evolutionists are candid. I mean, that they know what they believe. An evolutionist educator said that if the theory of evolution is really true, this is what he said, it has to mean that there is no God or gods, there is no such thing as a moral law, and there is no such thing as a future. When you die, that's the end of everything. And there is no such thing as free choice. Because you're born that way, see? He listed four things. If evolution is true, then those four things have to be so. And friends, we're living in a time when if you go to any university anywhere in the world, not just the United States, but let's say you go to Europe, you can go to Africa, South America, Australia, every continent on this planet, this theory has permeated all fields of learning. I remember years and years ago, a creation scientist came to Purdue University to give a lecture. And he was unable to make it all the way through as the vast majority of students scoffed and yelled at him, disrupting the presentation. They just couldn't give an answer, so they degraded the guy's character by hollering insults at him. And that's how the devil works, isn't it? Intimidation. The Bible says what? God is love. So evolution 
progressing, supposedly. Things get better. We're supposed to love and love, love grows, right? No, it doesn't. Paul laid out what happens. And, and look at where we are in the end of times. Look at the condition of man. May I ask you, friends, have you, have you ever had a rational discussion with a person who believes in evolution? Rational? No. A rational discussion about the Bible, no. about God. And if you haven't, try it sometime and notice the reaction and the spirit behind the response you get. By the way, do you know now they say it's no longer a theory but a fact since many around the world agree to the supposed evidence of evolution? They will argue with you on the, the point that it's a theory. That's incredible. Let me ask you this. Has the theory of evolution brought the world into a spiritual crisis? You know, when you're, you're bringing up a young child, does it make a difference in their behavior whether you, they think they're made in the image of God or they think they descended from an ape? It makes all the difference in the world in their behavior. Beloved, do you want your children to act like animals or do you want them to act like the sons and daughters of God? It matters a great deal. Let me share this with you. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 292. I always loved this. Error is never harmless. Period. Error is never harmless. It never sanctifies, but always brings confusion and dissension. It is always dangerous. The enemy has great power over minds that are not thoroughly fortified by prayer and established in Bible truth. Now, so far, I want you to notice that the first development has affected the entire religious world. Higher criticism. The second development, uniformitarianism and, and evolution, they're both together there, uh, um, has involved the entire educational and scientific world. Every field, essentially, you could say, of human thought. The third development involves just about everybody except the people who believe in the Bible and know some things in the Bible. And that development is, is the development of modern spiritualism. <clears throat> Excuse me. Modern spiritualism. This development which started in 1848, has affected the entire world. And it is affecting everybody. It affects atheists, agnostics, evolutionists, scientists, government leaders, church leaders, doesn't matter if you're in the Catholic Church or Protestant faith. It has permeated the whole world. Modern spiritualism began in Hydesville, New York in 1848. Some of you who've done some studies probably know all about this. It started at the home of a blacksmith who was, who, whose name was John Fox. You see, strange rapping noises began to occur in the bedroom of Fox's young daughters. Their names were Margaret, Margaret and Catherine. And the girls claimed the noises were communications from the departed spirit of a murdered peddler. And they became stars. 
and used spiritualism to make money and spread the deception everywhere they went. They became stars in the spiritualism movement that has continued to grow rapidly to our day. It has increased remarkably in the last few years in our time. But I want I want you to notice the timing of this. 1848. It was just after the three angels' messages were given and God had sent a prophet. And that prophet had to deal with this. From the book Christian Experience and Teachings, page 168. She says, quote, August 24, 1850, I saw that the mysterious rapping, and she's talking about the Fox sisters, there in Hydesville, New York, that house. She says that the mysterious rapping was the power of Satan. Some of it was directly from him and some indirectly through his agents, but it all proceeded from Satan. It was his work that he accomplished in different ways, yet many in the churches and the world were so enveloped in gross darkness that they thought and held forth that it was the power of God. found it interesting to note that some 40 years later, the Fox sisters denied that the wrappings were of a supernatural order. Contradicting, you see, the testimony of God's prophet, which I just read. They claimed it was a trick that they'd learned by snapping their toes. Isn't that interesting? And they did that up on a stage in an interview, by the way. However, you know what, what's really profound? In 1904, the skeletal remains of the dead peddler were found in the walls of the Fox house. Proving the Fox sisters were lying about it all being a trick as they never knew the peddler had been there all along. How did they know that if not from a supernatural force? They didn't kill him, put him in the wall. What is spiritualism? Merriam-Webster Online Dictionary. You can look it up. It says, A belief that spirits of the dead communicate with the living, usually through a medium. What year is that? Oh, right now. I mean, is it the 1800 dictionary? No, 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 no. I'll get to that in a moment. Because that's very interesting. Because I want you to know, keep aware of the timing of all this too. See? Uriah Smith wrote a, a, a little book, a small publication, and it was a, entitled Modern Spiritualism. And he defines it on page 15. And he has defined it about as well as anything I've ever come across defining it. Okay, He says, Modern Spiritualism, it is that there is in every human being a soul or spirit which constitutes the real person that this soul or spirit is immortal, that it manifests itself through a tangible body during this earth life, and when that body dies, passes unscathed into the unseen world, into an enlarged sphere of life, 
activity, and intelligence, that in this sphere it can still take cognizance of earthly things and communicate with those still in the flesh, respecting scenes which it has left, and those more interesting conditions still um, veiled from mortal sight, that it is by these disembodied or discarnated spirits that wraps are given, the wrappings, Objects moved, intelligence manifested, secrets revealed, slates written, voices uttered, faces shown, and epistles addressed to mortals as friend would write to friend. That is a dead-on definition of spiritualism. This Advent pioneer was addressing the spiritualism that started with the wrappings of the Fox sisters in his day, in the Advent movement, the early Advent movement. And it was spreading like fire all over the world. It's a good book to read, by the way. Now, here's a definition from the horse's mouth, so to speak. This woman's name is Catherine M. MacDonald. And I make, you know, I come across that name and it, it makes me wonder if she's related to the McDonald girl who first had visions of the secret rapture in uh, Scotland back in the late 1800s. It'd be interesting to see, wouldn't it? But she professes to be a spiritual psychic medium. And she was asked, what is spiritualism? And she says, quote, This is a question I'm often asked when I say that I am a modern spiritualist. Let us begin with an answer to that question. My intent here is to give the reader a clear idea of how I personally understand and practice modern spiritualism as a way of life. The fact that modern spiritualism is a way of life for its adherents is important. It is also a religion, philosophy, and science. Did you catch that? She says it is also a religion, philosophy, and science that is to be studied, not preached, and is, um, and is centered on the knowledge that there is continuous life after the change called death. Modern spiritualists have proof of this afterlife because we, as are all of humanity, are able to communicate with the disincarnate spirits of those who have crossed over to the spirit world through psychic gifts given by God and developed by the consistent practices of medianship. She says modern spiritualism combines philosophy, science, and religion as a way of living in with God as the center in every aspect of one's life. she admits that modern spiritualism combined philosophy, science, and religion. Did you catch that these eerily match the three developments that I'm addressing as bringing the world into spiritual conflict? Why is it called modern spiritualism? From the book Patriarchs and Prophets, we have an answer. Page 686. Modern spiritualism, resting upon the same foundation, is but a revival in a new form of the witchcraft and demon worship that God condemned and prohibited of old. So modern spiritualism is just a revival of witchcraft and demon worship. 
By the way, my wife had asked me, what does the Webster's 1828 dictionary, uh, how does it define spiritualism? Well, you can't find the word spiritualism in the Webster's 1828 dictionary. Because you see, he wrote it in 1828. It had been pretty much dormant until the wrappings of the Fox sisters in 1848, 20 years later. So dormant that Daniel Webster didn't have it in his 1828 dictionary. And so you ask me, Pastor Joel, what does all this have to do with defining God's church and, and, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Well, friends, it has quite a lot to do with identifying the true people of God, especially in our day. The three developments I have shared, higher criticism, evolution, uniformitarianism, and modern spiritualism, show us how dangerous the world has become and why we are living in an age and world of true unbelief in God, no matter the profession of belief in God. Peter talked about it, Paul talked about it, and God knew about it. Revelation 12 and verse 9. We're familiar with this scripture. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. God knew what was to happen before it happened. And so he knew that this the time was going to come when Satan would deceive the whole world. So does God stand idly by while all this is going on, like the theistic evolutionists proclaim? Well, no, friends. The Bible says that God is active in the affairs of mankind. So let me ask you a question, and I want you to think about it. If you were in God's position thousands of years ago, and you foresaw what was going to happen in the world in the last days, and you knew that the devil was going to, what he was going to do to deceive the, the whole world, and you wanted to save as, as many people as you could, what would you do? Well, let's see what God said He was going to do about it, and it's a sign for us we can follow to God's people in the last days. You'll find it in God's true church. In the Old Testament, one of the greatest prophets, Elijah, came to the children of Israel when they were in a time like we're in today, when there was an apostasy and people didn't believe in the God of heaven, and they were kneeling down to Baal and to idols, demon worship. Elijah came with a message. And it was a stern message. But it woke up a lot of people. And there was a great reformation that went throughout the land and throughout the children of Israel. And ever since that time, whenever a prophet arose who brought a great reformation, they would call them an Elijah prophet. And God talked about this through the prophet Malachi, part of our scripture reading for today. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers what, to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So our Heavenly Father, foreseeing the great crisis that the world would be brought into in the last days because of the, the theories of higher criticism, the theories of evolution, because of the working of spiritualism, which has inundated the world with deception, he says, before Jesus returns, I, I know that you're going to, going to go into perilous times. So what our Heavenly Father say. You're going to be in, in very deceptive times. 
The devil's going to deceive the whole world, but I'm going to do something special for my people. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. So the Jews who read the scriptures in the book of Malachi, they began to look for the coming of Elijah the prophet. And when Jesus came, the Jews were looking for the coming of Elijah the prophet. Find it in John, the Gospel of John chapter 1. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? You know, Elijah. And he said, I am not. And then they said, Art thou that prophet? See? That is the prophet Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 18.15. Sometimes, you know, I've seen some, some commentaries say where well, they thought that he, he was Moses returning as well. But he answered no. Verse 22. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? that we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth a one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. You see, here's what the problem was with the Jews. And it's a problem among many Christians today, especially Adventists too. And I hope it's not your problem. You know, the Bible says that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. You, you read, and, and if you cannot discern spiritual things and all you can see is literal things, you're going to be in trouble. You're not going to understand the Word of God. And the Jews knew that God had taken Elijah in a chariot, you see, up into heaven in the days of Ahab. And Elijah was up there. And they said that they, not only did they say, but they taught that before the Messiah comes, God is going to send Elijah, the same one who spoke to Ahab and Jezebel. God is going to send it back down from heaven to us. And so they asked John, are you Elijah? You know, the one that talked to Ahab and Jezebel. And John said, no, I'm not. You know what they said then? They said, well, then the Messiah cannot be coming yet. Because before the Messiah comes, Elijah has to come back down from heaven. So what was their problem? They did not discern spiritual things. Was John the Baptist the Elijah prophet who was promised? Yes, he was. Jesus said so. Let's go to Matthew 11. Verse 11. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In other words, he's saying, they're not greater than John in moral worth or courage or character or achievement, but in the privilege of being associated with Christ himself in person. That's what he's talking about. Verse 12, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. We studied that. I gave a message on that a few months ago. Verse 13, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if ye will receive it, this is Elijah. 
which was for to come. He that hath, an, hath ears to hear, let him hear. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Was John the Baptist the Elijah prophet? Yes, he was. And notice what Jesus said about the Elijah prophet. He said in verse 9, if you back it up, he said in verse, John, verse 9 that John was not only a prophet, but that he was more than a prophet. He was more than a prophet. Now let me tell you something. This is, this is the very best news on the face of the earth right now. <laughs> there have been three times since the beginning of the world that God has sent His children because of the crisis they were in, not just a prophet, but somebody who was more than a prophet. The first time God sent His children, somebody who was more than a prophet, was when He sent Moses. Miriam and Aaron were prophets too. And one time they got jealous of Moses. And in Numbers 12 verse 2 they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the, you know what happened? The Lord heard him because he can read the heart. You remember what the Lord said to them? You go to Numbers 12, verse 6. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I the Lord will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth even apparently, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. I'm telling you, friends, Moses was more than just a prophet. The second time God sent his children somebody who was more than a prophet was when he sent John the Baptist. When Jesus came, that was the most important event of the ages. Before Jesus came, God sent His children somebody who was a prophet, all right, but somebody who was more than a prophet because that was a crisis period and they needed it. And the third time God sent His children somebody who was a prophet, who was more than a prophet, was in the last days. In Malachi, we read that before the coming of the dreadful, the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and that's speaking about the second coming, God said, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. Now the Elijah prophet before the first coming was more than a prophet. And the Elijah prophet before the second coming is more than a prophet too. And we'll see that soon. This is the best possible news I could tell you all today. God loves us. He wants to prepare us for Christ's second coming. You and I are living in the most spiritually dangerous time of all ages. And we need spiritual instruction from heaven to keep us focused in Bible truth. We're dealing with the world. Even the people who are the, the spiritual leaders of the world do not have confidence in the scriptures anymore because of the theories of higher criticism. The scientific community and the educated people don't have confidence in the Bible because of the theories of geology, evolution which they've been taught since they were young. And nobody believes in what the book, this book, the Bible, teaches anymore who's been involved in spiritualism because they have been taught opposite theories that are contrary to God's Word. 
And God knew that this would happen. Jesus predicted it in Luke 18. And so he promised through Malachi the prophet. He said that before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, he was going to do something special for us. He knew we were going to be in trouble. We were going to be in perilous times. There were going to be scoffers. There were going to be mockers. It was going to be an age of unbelief. So the Lord said, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet, somebody who is more than a prophet. John the Baptist, more than a prophet. The Elijah prophet is to be more than a prophet. We just read that. Matthew 11. But the great tragedy that happened to the Jews is that the Elijah prophet came and they asked him, Are you Elijah? Are you the one that talked to Ahab and Jezebel? And he said, No, I'm not. So they said, Well, that's not the Elijah prophet. And they left. And they missed out. And they wound up crucifying the Messiah. Here they had contact with the man whom Jesus said there had never been anybody born of a woman who was greater than this man. He was more than a prophet. He was a special messenger sent to prepare the people for the Messiah. Do you know whom it was that became Jesus' disciples? If you study the New Testament, you'll find out that when Jesus came, it was the people who had been with John the Baptist. Was it important whether or not they knew whom the Elijah prophet was? Well, it made all the difference in the world whether or not they would be ready to meet the Messiah. Now, the Jews had the Bible. That's the Old Testament. That was all that they had been, that had been written so far. And you know, sometimes I, I meet people say, Pastor Joel, I don't need any, any more prophecy. There are no more prophets. I have the Bible. I say, well, bless your pea-picking heart. Because I have the Bible too, and I love every word of it. But do you realize, my friends, that those Jews in the time of Christ missed what God wanted them to know because they did not accept the gift of prophecy that God sent to them just before Jesus came? They missed it. The most wonderful thing that God sent to them, and they missed it. That was part of the reason they rejected the Messiah. And beloved, I'll tell you, let us not do as they did. Let us not miss the Elijah prophet that God has sent to his people to prepare them for Christ's second coming. And next time we'll learn more about this Elijah prophet that's to be found among the remnant seed of the woman, the church of God. I invite you to pray with me now. Father in heaven, we again thank you so much for this glorious Sabbath day. This most holy day that you created to be with your people, specifically your people, your church. We thank you so much for your holy word and that you love us so much and care for us so much that you don't just leave us alone. You know that we're in perilous times. You know the devil's trying to deceive the whole world and that his, his false miracles and his supernatural workings if they could, would deceive the very elect. But there's a reason why they won't be deceived. It's because you've sent a special gift. You've sent the Elijah prophet to prepare them for those days. So Father, as we study these things out, we pray for the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us to the truth that we may not 
be tricked by false prophets and false Christs, but we will recognize the true prophet, the Elijah prophet. Again, we thank you for the Sabbath and for Jesus. We pray you continue to bless us for we're not worthy, Lord, but Jesus is. And we ask it humbly in his name.